This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. We got a ton to do, obviously. Got to talk about the debacle that was this farce of a health care bill. What the heck was going on? It's it's so bad. Everything. The bill was bad. The way they unveiled it was bad. The way they pitched it, marketed it, explained it, tried to fight for it. Like the whole thing was bad. So amateur. I, I uh, and so far off. I, I wrote on Facebook the other day that we don't just need to repeal Obamacare. Right. That's the big debate. Like, do we repeal or not repeal? Like, whoa, that. Not only do we need to repeal it, we need to repeal the last hundred years of health care mandates and regulations and government control. This bill wasn't even close, right? <laughs> That's just a sign of how not close it was. We don't like, hmm, should we repeal? Ob- yeah, you should repeal Obamacare. And way more. We'll break all that down coming up uh, in a few hours, but I loved what Matt Walsh, uh, Blaze's own Matt Walsh, wrote on Twitter. He said, voters, the voters said, here, Republicans, control every branch of government. Don't let us down. And the Republicans trips, stabs self, falls into ocean and drowns. <laughs> it's like, guys, you've totally blown it. Not a good sign. And, and such an incredible betrayal when for the last eight years, the Republicans have said, oh, listen, we, we, we want to so badly, but we can't repeal Obamacare until we have the majority. And now the line is, well, geez, I mean, if we repeal Obamacare, we're going to lose our majority. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. No, no, no. If you don't repeal it, you will lose your majority, and you deserve to lose it. Anyway, don't get me going. We'll talk more about that coming up uh, a little later. I want to start with Gorsuch, though. Um, Let's start here with a uh, clip of Senator Feinstein from California, who, you should know, is celebrating her 138th year in the Senate. So we're really... I'm uh, excited for her uh, being a longtime senator from California. Uh, let's start with 1421, gentlemen. This is personal, but I find this originalist judicial philosophy to be really troubling. In essence, it means that judges and courts should evaluate our constitutional rights and privileges as they were understood in 1789. However, to do so, 
would not only ignore the intent of the framers, that the Constitution would be a framework on which to build, but it severely limits the genius of what our Constitution upholds. I firmly believe the American Constitution is a living document intended to evolve as our country evolves. Hmm. Okay. Uh, let's chat about this. Let's chat about living constitution versus, versus what? A dead con? No, an enduring constitution. That's what Justice Scalia would call it. It's not a dead constitution. It's an enduring constitution. And the reason it endures forever is because it is written to control a uh, one thing that never changes. And that is human nature. If we got back to the constitution and the proper size and scope of government, then the Constitution's here to restrain ambition and power of politicians and bureaucrats over our lives. That will never change, right? For, for, for of all time and for all time in the future, people want power. They, they want power and they're ambitious. And the Constitution is there to put chains on those people to protect your God-given freedom. That, that it will be true forever because human nature will never change. But what Feinstein just did there was a, a just classic uh, misunderstanding of what an enduring constitution means and, and what they think a living constitution is. Uh, I want to play one more clip here. This is Justice Breyer, who's a progressive judge, and Justice Scalia, who, of course, just passed away, who was uh, a conservative judge. So Breyer is the living constitution guy, just like Feinstein, and Scalia obviously is the enduring constitution guy. I want to play this clip here because Breyer starts off talking about why the living constitution is bad. And then Scalia, I think, puts him properly in his place. And then we'll break it down. 1422. The normal way in which the phrase is used, though it's become something of a cliche, and so I don't like to use it because it takes on a pejorative meaning. But I think that underlying the idea was that if you go back to the end of the 18th century uh, and you examine what the founders thought, say, about the Commerce Clause, they didn't think of the internet and they didn't think of television, and they didn't think of the radio or automobiles, etc. But they wrote a value into that clause, and that value is permanent, like the value under the First Amendment is permanent. Free speech is a value that's permanent. But how you apply that to a world where social conditions and physical conditions and every other condition is changing continuously, and how you take a, a document that, that applied to four million people or so in 1789 and today has to govern a continent of 300 million people of every race, every religion, every point of view. And you know, with 300 million people, we have 900 million points of view minimum. And uh, how you do that is not obvious. And the Constitution in the application of it adapts to the circumstance in order to keep the values the same. Now, well, that's the kind yeah. of thing that underlies that notion, cliche though it is, and I think that which underlies it is certainly valid. Hey, guys, can we pause that? Let's, let's pause if, that before, if, we, uh, before we go on to the Scalia part. So, um, first of all, as we talked about last week, there's only one race. Breyer said all the races, there's only one race. Um, but see how he works? I mean, obviously, he explains that you know, articulately, incorrectly, but articulately. So, a living constitution person says, hey, listen, society's different today than in 1789. We have the internet, for instance. Therefore, because we have the internet and cars and everything, then we can 
rewrite and interpret the Constitution to mean anything we want to today. All right, it's, a, it's an old baby with the bathwater approach. Because some things in society have changed, or heck, even because all things in society have changed, therefore the Constitution is meaningless. They'll say that it applied to a society and a people way back then and no longer applicable today. Now, the left doesn't throw away the whole Constitution. They just take away bits and pieces of it uh, and reinterpret parts of it to fit whatever they want. But when you do that, it's nothing but a prop, right? They'll wheel out the Constitution when it fits their agenda. And they'll mold it and bend it and chip away at it when they, uh, when, when, when they want to do that as well. So in the end, it might, not, might as well not even exist. If you think it's a living constitution, it might as well not even exist at all. It's just a prop. Let's say that I live my life according to the Bible, right? I live my life according to the Bible, but not that part. And ooh, not that other part. And well, I'm just going to add this other part in here. Like, like, what's the point of saying you live your life according to the Bible? If, if you don't like, it, it's just a prop at that point. And maybe Bible has too much emotion. Let, let's say I live my life according to, um, I, I live my life according to everything in Plato's The Republic. Right? That's, that's my guidebook for a living. But not that part. Or this other part. And I'm going to add in a chapter here because I want to. Like, well, what's the point then? What's the, the, it's just a prop. Same with the Constitution. And if you think it's a living Constitution, it's nothing but a prop. So Scalia says, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. That's, not, that's not quite right. right. Let's pick it up where Scalia jumps in. If all, if all you meant by the living Constitution is that the Constitution has to be applied to new circumstances that were not envisioned at the time of its adoption, I wouldn't give it the name living Constitution, but I wouldn't disagree. Of course you have to figure out how the First Amendment applies to new technologies, to radio, to television, and so forth. That, that's not what the fight is about. The fight is about taking pre-existing technologies, pre-existing realities that were there at the time the Constitution was founded and changing the answers. I've sat with three colleagues, living constitutionalists, who believed the death penalty was unconstitutional. Nothing has changed. No technology uh, alters whether that's a constitutional punishment or not. And yet the living constitutionalist could one day say, ah, because of the new circumstances of our 300 million people, we feel differently about it today than we used to, and therefore I am going to prescribe from the bench that you cannot have the death penalty. That's the kind of thing that I do not agree with in, in the living Constitution. It applies not just to the death penalty, it applies to abortion. Abortion existed then, nothing's changed. Nobody thought abortion was, was uh, pro prohibition of it was, uh, was unconstitutional, but living constitutionalists say it is. The same thing applies to, you know, prohibition of homosexual conduct. It, 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 it's not the disposition I'm concerned about. If you want to change things, if these 300 million people want to change things, you don't have to use the Constitution to do it. Use the legislature. That's what we do in a democracy. And it's very undemocratic for the court to say, make the change. It's quite possible for the people to abolish the death penalty, to pro permit homosexual conduct, or for that matter, same-sex marriage, and, and, to, and to permit suicide and all sorts of things. The issue is whether a judge can say, the living constitution has morphed. 
and so what used to be okay is now not bad, uh, is now bad. That, that's, that's the living constitution I'm talking about, and it's, it's the one that I wish would die. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to Judge Gorsuch here. And, and to the, wrap up the clip we played of Dianne Feinstein, that's what she talked about with, uh, at the end of the clip, she said, um, you know, without a living constitution, the constitution can't change, basically. And you're like, well, of course it can. <laughs> you amend the constitution. Right, you do it properly. So what's the point of it? What's the job of a judge? Is the job of a judge and, and eight other people in robes in a marble palace, is it their job to be able to, to change the Constitution at their whim, to change the law at their whim? If that's true, then what's the point of having it? Why, why even pretend that there's such a thing to begin with? What's, what's the point if nine people in black robes can just change it whenever they want? Of course, that can't be how it works. I want to come back and play a, or a talk about a case that Judge Gorsuch ruled on a couple of years back when he was on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. And this is a perfect, a perfect example of how Judge Gorsuch will, uh, will act as Supreme Court justice. And I think it's a good sign. And it's a good sign whether you're a progressive or a conservative. Because honestly, if you're a progressive, you don't want an activist conservative judge. Right, <laughs> You don't want a, a, a conservative judge who believes in a living constitution because then he will just bend and manipulate and destroy the constitution to the conservative end. Conservatives don't want them. Progressives sure as heck shouldn't want that. They should be grateful that conservative justices are originalists and they follow the law as written. I got an example of Judge Gorsuch doing just that. We'll do it next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. This is Mike Slater. So, simple quote from Thomas Jefferson. You've heard it before. On every question of construction, carry ourselves back to the time when the Constitution was adopted. Recollect the spirit manifested in the debates. And instead of trying what meaning may be, may be squeezed out of the text or invented against it, conform to the probable one in which it was passed. Um, I want to give an example of a, of a Gorsuch ruling where he does just that and and it this is all you need to know about how he will do his job as supreme court justice and he will become the supreme court justice there's no doubt about that so this is a tough story for some people to see so i don't i don't know where you'll be like so so if you get it right away uh just know that there are a lot of people listening who who don't get this uh right away but we'll, we'll break it all down here so back in 2009 there was a trucker uh, a Trans Am trucker, over-the-road trucker. And he was stuck in the freezing cold, went to stop, get some uh, gas or something, and there were frozen brake lines. And he was stuck, couldn't go anywhere. So he called the supervisor and asked for a repairman to get out to him. 
And in the meantime, while waiting, he fell asleep. He woke up a couple hours later and started to feel numb. It was freezing cold. So he called the supervisor up and said, hey, man, I'm really, really cold. Where's the uh, repair guy? So the supervisor said he should be there any minute. You can either drive away or stay. Right? So you can either drive the truck somewhere else or you can stay right where you are and wait. The trucker did not follow either instruction. He unhooked his trailer and drove away with the trailer unattended. And the repair truck arrived 15 minutes later. A week later, he was fired for leaving his load unattended. For leaving his trailer unattended. So he sued under OSHA made it up to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, which ruled two to one in favor of the driver. But Gorsuch was the one judge who ruled against the driver. Okay, let's pause here. So right now, I want to get all of our emotion out of the way. Let's get all the emotion out of our system. Was it wrong for the employer to fire the driver for this? Sure, it was wrong. Like, like, go with it, right? Morally, that was wrong. The employer made a bad decision, shouldn't have fired the employee. If I was the employer, I never would have fired the employee like that. Okay, what about the driver? Did the driver do the right thing? Sure. Saved his life, right? He was going to die there in the freezing cold. He had to do something, and, right? So get, get all that stuff out of your system. The employer did the wrong thing. The employee did the right thing, right? If I was the employer, I would never fire someone for doing that or whatever. Get all that out of your system because... As a citizen or a regular walking around person, that's fine. We can have those judgments. But as a judge, none of that stuff means anything. It all means nothing. Your opinion and what you would do if you were in their shoes means squat. So this was Gorsuch's opinion. He said it might be fair to ask whether Trans Am's decision was a wise or kind one. And that's what we just did, right? Did they make the right decision? No, they didn't. You can ask that. But it's not our job as judges to answer questions like that. Our only task is, is to decide whether the decision was an illegal one. Not a good decision or a bad decision or a wise one or a nice one. A legal one or not. He goes on. He says, now the Department of Labor says that the employee did not break the law. Because the law says, and see if we can follow this, the law says if a driver thinks it's unsafe to drive a vehicle, he doesn't have to. And the court says it's illegal to fire an employee who, quote, refuses to operate a vehicle because the employee has a reasonable apprehension of serious injury. Okay? So Gorsuch says, yeah, the employee, employer told him to stay put let me try this again the law the law says let's say you're a driver and 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 your employer says you have to drive that truck and you're like uh i don't want to it's gonna blow up if i turn it on and they're like no you must and you're like ah no i I refuse to i'm gonna die if i turn that truck on right and you the, the employer can't fire you if you think the truck is dangerous and the employer says you must drive it and you're like no i don't want to right you can't get fired for that but in this case the employer said, don't drive the truck, and the guy did. So it's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of the law. 
So Gorsuch says Trans Am expressly, and by everyone's admission, permitted him to sit and remain where he was. And the trucker was fired only after he declined his protected option, staying put, and chose instead to operate his vehicle in a manner he thought wise, but his employer did not. And there's simply no law that anyone has pointed us to giving employees the right to operate their vehicles in a way that their employer forbids. This is the key line of the whole thing. Maybe the Department of Labor would like such a law. Maybe someday Congress will adorn our federal statute books with such a law. But it isn't there yet. And it isn't our job to write one or to allow the Department of Labor to write one in Congress's place. I love that, right? So he's saying, listen, uh, sure, maybe I really want that to be the law, but it's not there. And I can't pretend it's there. I can't wish it were there. I can't fake it as if it's there. I can't let the Department of Labor make up a law because that's not their job. It's Congress's job. So that's my job. So here's a man who interprets the law as written. You know, like a judge. Mike Slater Show, spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. I want to uh, share a story here that I think ties into uh, living versus enduring constitution or, or the type of person who would believe in a living constitution versus the type of person who believes in an enduring constitution. This is uh, from a couple of days ago. Tucker Carlson was talking with the CEO of the uh, something called the Creative Coalition, and they were chatting about uh, the federal government defunding the NEA. We don't need to go into it. We've made a few arguments from people who have received NEA grants saying that it's a huge waste of money and just funds bad art. The reason I want to play this clip is because this woman who's for the NEA is taking our advice. What do you mean? Uh, well, first, the argument she's making is such a stretch that she can't really do it with a straight face. So it doesn't it doesn't really work, but she's on the right track. Remember, I think around Thanksgiving, we started talking about moral foundations. It's the official word for them. I call them political languages. So progressives speak in the language of caring and fairness. That's their moral foundation. That's their political language, caring and fairness. Conservatives speak in terms of tradition and purity and authority. So if you are talking to a progressive, and you want to change their mind on an issue. That progressive has a moral foundation different than yours, assuming you're a conservative. So you must speak in their language. It is impossible to change a progressive's mind using your political language. Or vice versa. If you're progressive, you can't change a conservative's mind if you're using the progressive political language. You can't. It's impossible. It can't be done. It's it's no different than if you speak Japanese and you're trying to convince someone who speaks German to 
believe what you believe and you're speaking to them in Japanese, like it can't be done, right? You have, you have to speak their language. So here we have uh, someone in support of the NEA. So an artsy person, I'm, I'd bet a hundred bucks she voted for Hillary, right? So she's a progressive. So her moral foundation is caring and fairness. Now she did not go on Fox News and say, you should support the NEA because it's nice to support artists who are making the world a more beautiful place. And art is so great. And it's only fair that we, the people, support great art around the world. And we're caring for poor people by giving them access to art they may not. Right? She didn't do that. Because that's all a language of caring and fairness. And that would work great on NPR, right? If she made that argument on NPR to the NPR audience, they'd eat it up. They'd be like, oh, yes, it is so fair and it's so caring and they'd love it. But not to a Fox News audience. So this woman is very smart. So she's on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News and she decided to use the moral foundation and the political language of conservatives. So listen to the kinds of arguments she makes. Now, again, she knows that this is a huge stretch, so she can't really, like I said, do it with a straight face. And I know you don't believe these arguments, but so I'm just focusing on her attempt to make conservative arguments, and and that is uh, wise on on her on her part. So listen to the language she uses. Fourteen twenty. Ensure that every citizen ha- has that right to bear, bear arts, but. But, but I'm, I'm confused. I mean, I love the name, the right to bear arts. And, I, I, and as long as I can put arts in a holster, I'm totally for it. But we live at a time when there are more rich people than at any time in world history. So just for example, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett together have more than $200 billion. The NEA gets, what, $150 million a year? The they NEA can fund it like that. Zero, zero, zero point. Four percent—that's that's a, a thousandth, thousandth of a percent of the federal budget, and it brings in ten times that amount. Let's just forget about the arts. Let's forget that the arts are what keeps America great. Let's look at economic development. I mean, I would assume that you're for economic development oh, in this country. On. Come on. So, sorry, guys. Do, do you have that clip still up, Chris? Do you have the original clip? Yeah, can you? St- there's another. There's another part of that. If you can pull up uh, three fourteen to four thirty, let, let me know. Yeah, no worries. Let me know when you have that. Um, Why do you have wouldn't it now? our government? Okay, cool, go. Cool. So there's a little more to this. Our great nation invest in something that brings back ten dollars for every dollar invested. That helps the military. That makes sure that underserved populations get to college. That uh-huh. makes for a better workforce. I mean, we have all the data, and it absolutely dumps me as -hmm. to why anyone would be against such a small investment that brings back such a well if it's such an investment we we should be spending a trillion dollars on it but let me just ask you this you said it helped the art what what role did the nea play in say the battle of fallujah let's look at the nea and what role it plays (laughs) let's look at let's look at what role the nea plays Uh in making america great are we for, you're on one team, I'm on another team, but are we both for economic development in this country? Right. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Are we both here to, are we trying to make sure that the next generation is a leading generation? You have kids, I have kids. Do we want them to be complete and full citizens working to their maximum potential? Uh-huh. 
I'm on the blue team. Yeah, no, no. I, I do. And I, and I agree with you. Okay. You get the idea, right? So how did she frame her argument? She didn't say in the entire interview, and that's only a couple part of it, but in the entire interview, she never said, we need to fund the NEA because we got to help struggling artists, right? <laughs> she didn't make that argument because that doesn't speak to conservatives. She instead, instead she talked about economic development. She talked about uh, how NEA helps the military, which makes no sense at all, but she said it improves the workforce. Right? These are conservative. This is the conservative political language. She called it an investment, which appeals to conservatives. Right? Conservatives are much more prudent with money generally. Um, conservatives don't like spending. We like investing. Different. Now, again, all of her arguments are total nonsense. Like, like how can the NEA spending a dollar result in the return of $10? Like that, that doesn't make any sense at all. And as Tucker said, if that's true, then we should spend a trillion dollars on the NEA. Because then we'd have $10 trillion. Like that's, that's the dumbest thing ever. But the fact that she even thought of making that kind of argument proves that she was trying to appeal to conservatives. Oh, one more thing. She said, um, she said something like, you know, don't we want our kids to be uh, leading and to reach their maximum potential? Oh, that's, that's such good conservative language. Right. She didn't say we want our kids to grow up to be loving and caring adults. She said we want them to be leading and maximum potential. Very, very well done on her behalf. Now, very unfortunately for her, it, you know, it was such an absurd reach that you know, she didn't really convince any one of her arguments. But I brought up these moral foundation things uh, back in around Thanksgiving time for two reasons. First, if you want to convince someone to change their mind on an issue... They're, I mean, that's the most important thing is to be able to speak their language. You must do that. There's no other way. It can't be done otherwise. Can't. Impossible. So if you want to change someone's mind, you have to know their political language. But also to be aware if someone else is trying to convince you to change your mind, to be aware that they're speaking your language too, right? And if we ever see progressives using conservative political language, it means they've caught on, right? They got the trick. They got the key. They know the secret and they're using it. Now, when the Democrats, and, and they're still in it now, although this whole debacle of healthcare kind of maybe snapped them out of the hysteria mode a little bit, we'll see. But if you're in hysteria mode, you're never going to be with your wits enough to speak properly the other person's conservative uh, political language. So the Democrats have just been running around with their hair on fire for a while. So they haven't even attempted this. But now that they can kind of get their feet under them for a little bit, see if they start speaking in ways that appeal to conservatives more. We'll see. We'll see if they're smart enough to do it. This woman was, and she did an excellent job at it. one 900 Oh, real quick, to tie back into uh, living constitution versus the enduring constitution, originalist. So living constitution people, progressives, caring and fairness right so they look at the constitution and they're like oh you know they didn't they didn't uh, include anything about gay people so it's not that, that's not it's not it's it's mean dog it's an old it's it doesn't apply anymore we need to you know change it to be fair to right it's like hold out but conservatives they're originalists because they're like their political language is purity 
and authority and tradition. So they're like, no, boom, that's what it is. There it is. There's the Constitution. You want to change it? You got to go through the amendment process, but there it is. I'm originalist about it, right? Purity, tradition, authority, right? You can see how a conservative would be more uh, originalist versus a living Constitution person who's more hippy-dippy about it. So you can see how that transcends uh, a lot of different political issues. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on The Blaze Radio Network. wrap up our uh, our judge conversation we can move on in the next couple hours we still have to talk about the health care debacle from uh, the last couple of days too we will do that i promise so this is a little tricky to know how this process works but in february in the ninth circuit court of appeals which is the most overturned uh, court in the country um uh, super super crazy progressive so they had a three judge panel a three judge panel back in february that uh, ruled against Trump's refugee executive order, right? The, the visa refugee executive order. So the three-judge panel ruled against, and CNN went nuts, right? Just total like, like judges to, to you know destroy Trump, the breaking news, all that stuff, right? So that was in February. Well, the other day, a five-judge panel on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals not only upheld Trump's executive order dealing with refugees, but rebuked, strongly criticized the three-judge panel, saying that the courts have no authority to overturn the president's executive order on this issue. They have no authority to do it. Not only were they were they wrong in what they said, but they, they couldn't even say it. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't even in their, their purview to say it in the first place. Now, did that get any media attention? No, CNN, CNN wasn't. Breaking news! We were totally wrong last month! This is what the, 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 uh, the five-judge panel said. They said, we are judges, not platonic guardians. I'll get to that in a second. It is our duty to say what the law is. And the source of our law, the U.S. Constitution, commits the power to make foreign policy, including the decisions to permit or forbid entry into the United States, to the president and Congress. Period which is what we've all said the day after he issued the executive order. Now, you can decide whether or not it was wise or not, but it was, certainly was not something that a judge could come in and say he could not do. So uh, let's unpack this. So platonic guardian. So uh, platonic, that's Plato uh, in, in the Republic. And Plato's the Republic, which randomly I mentioned half an hour ago. Um, there are three classes of people that Plato talks about. You have the producers, the auxiliaries, and the guardians. And the producers are the workers. The auxiliaries are the warriors. And the guardians are the, the, the smart people in charge of ruling over the people. Right, you've probably heard the word philosopher king. Those are the, uh, the guardians, the philosopher kings. So th- these judges are saying, listen, we're not philosopher kings here. We're, we're just judges, and it's our job to follow the law and follow the Constitution. And the Constitution is clear that foreign policy is left to the Congress and the president, and we... We have to show deference on this issue, whether we personally like it or not. 
Are you listening, Judge in Hawaii? Whether you like it or not, it's not your job to grandstand. And that's what this is. You have so many grandstanding federal judges that are making these huge stretches in order to rule on it at all. So there's something in the process called standing. Um, you know, Someone has to have standing in order to sue the government. Right? Someone just can't w- walk in and be like, I don't like this law. I'm suing the government. You have to prove that you are directly harmed by the law, that your rights are harmed by the law specifically. So in order to do that, these judges have made these huge stretches talking the, the Hawaii judge in particular talked about the hypothetical emotional well-being of people in Hawaii because of this executive order. And, and he talked about the hypothetical scholars from Yemen and Somalia who might want to study at the University of Hawaii. And he talked about the stress and anxiety. I'm not kidding. He talks about the anxiety that this executive order causes people. <laughs> Therefore, this hypothetical person has standing and I rule against it. Like that is, that is a total joke, but he did it. And the media, instead of explaining the process, just runs with it and then has these big headlines. And then everyone um, just thinks that that's the end of it. Even though you have the five judge panel come down and say, Whoa, the five judge panel says that the three judge panel, their errors were quote, many and obvious quote, the panel's clear misstatement of law justifies vacating the opinion, vacating the opinion. So they're saying that the earlier decision that they made was so bad. It was was just malpractice that they should void the entire thing. Pretend it never even happened. (laughs) Holy cow. But no one, of course, talking about uh, the rest of the story. Right. CNN, everyone else, full on coverage on the original decision. Crickets about this rebuking of that opinion. Doesn't fit the agenda, of course. 1-888-933-93 one 933 Slater Radio on um, on Twitter. Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We're going to come back. We'll talk about uh, one of the outrages of the week, the Meals on Wheels. Donald Trump eliminating Meals on Wheels. Clearly not true. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. We're going to talk about the uh, healthcare debacle coming up in the next hour, but I want to get, uh, I want to make sure you know all about this. So you heard last week that President Trump destroyed Meals on Wheels. It's gone. Just gone. Uh, the budget that President Trump proposed cut Meals on Wheels. And uh, I mean, the budget hasn't even passed, but millions of old people are already starving to death because of it. So that, of course, is the image the left wants you to have. People starving to death. Where did this come from? It's not true, by the way. So where did it come from? Now, I'm going to be... F- fair here for people on the left this all was too good to pass up right it's got everything you got evil republican donald trump you got budget cuts that will push grandma off a cliff i mean it's all it's all right there and that's why you get time magazine trump's budget would kill a program that feeds 2.4 million senior citizens like that is so that's so wrong 
It's morally wrong to write a headline like that. That is so not true. Notice they use the word kill, right? It's not going to end the program. It's going to kill the program that feeds 2.4 million senior citizens. Like that is so not true. Now, anyway, but they put the word kill there. You know, they kill the program. What they really want you to think is that Trump is killing grandma. So again, total lie. Here's how it works. The federal government has a program called the CDBG, the Community Development Block Grant Program. Now, you get a tweet like this one from Jake Tapper. He said, on the chopping block, $3 billion community development block grant program, which funds programs like Meals on Wheels. Okay. Now, I'm reading, I'm just going to read the first few responses to Jake Tapper's tweet. Wow, I volunteer for them. Great program, very sad and unchristian. Next comment, whoever said Republicans were the Christian party? Oh, wait, they did constantly. I truly want to know how they can claim to be Christian. Jesus loved the poor first. Let me scroll down a little bit here. Now you get the idea. Uh, my, my World War II vet father has helped remain independent by Meals on Wheels. I'm ashamed that Trump feels the need to cut this service. And it goes on and on and on. Now let me read this tweet again. On the chopping block, $3 billion community development block grant program which funds programs like Meals on Wheels. Now that gives the assumption that Meals on Wheels is entirely funded by this community development block program. That is entirely not true. A couple things. First, what does this program really go to? Where does this money go to? I'll give you some examples. $588,000 went to pay for a marina in Alexandria, Louisiana. $245,000 went for the expansion of an art museum in Allentown, Pennsylvania. $147,000 went for a canopy walk at the Atlanta Botanical Gardens in Georgia. Anyone, uh, anything here for the poor yet? Are we helping out the poor? Are we helping out grandma? Are we helping the children yet with the uh, $100,000 canopy walk at the Botanical Gardens? $98,000 for the Pearl Fincher Museum of Fine Arts in Spring, Texas. $245,000 for renovations to an awning at a historical market in Roanoke, Virginia. You get the idea. That's where this community development block grant program money goes. Not Meals on Wheels. It goes to fund stupid little pork projects that the federal government have no business funding. So where's most of the money go? It actually goes to the people who operate the grant program itself. Most of the money goes to the people running the program. How much of it goes to Meals on Wheels? Almost none. Almost none. The left is so good at these at these sales pitches. And the Republicans are terrible at it. That's why I was hoping President Trump would get in front of these things. Right? Same thing with the health care bill, which so we'll, we'll, we'll save that for, for the next hour. But keep this analysis in mind because it's the exact same. I wish Trump would get in front of these things. I thought he would. Right? I thought he would come out and say, hey, American people, here's my budget. In this budget, I am cutting the community, de- community development uh, block grant program. The Democrats will say that the money goes to Meals on Wheels. 
But what the money's really going to is to expand a brewery in Michigan. Which is not only a waste of money, but it's cronyism because there's no other brewery in Michigan getting federal grant money. Where the money's really going is a million dollars to improve a playground and a sidewalk outside of an elementary school in Riverside, California. It's not going to grandma. It's not going to Meals on Wheels. Get in front of it. Kill the narrative before it can even start. Why don't they do that? You know what they're going to do, right? You know what the the Democrats are going to do with that. They're going to look at the community block program and they're going to find the the saddest program in there, right? You know what I mean? Like like the most uh, heart-wrenching program. Oh, Meals on Wheels. Boom. Done. Let's say that Trump is ending the Meals on Wheels program. You know they're going to do that. So why not get in front of it? Beat them to the punch. So how do Meals on Wheels really get involved? Some cities do, right? So the federal government will give money to the cities and some cities and towns will give some of that money to Meals on Wheels. Not all of them, certainly, but some will. Most of the money, that federal money that goes to Meals on Wheels, comes through the Older Americans Act, which was passed in 1965. That program's not being cut. If you take the Meals on Wheels budget, about 35% of the budget comes from the older, uh, sorry, 35% of the budget comes from the federal government. And almost all that money comes from the Older Americans. I mean, like 99.9% of the money comes from the Older Americans Act. And that isn't being cut at all. That's 35% of their budget. The other, 60, uh, the other uh, 65% comes from donations, uh, private donations and corporate donations. So the community development block grant program in certain areas for Meals on Wheels is zero. And in some places it's some, but it's negligible. Nothing that couldn't be fixed by people donating a little bit more money and then it would all be covered. Or, or if the bureaucrats in these cities didn't waste the money in the first place, then they would have credibility to say that this money is actually going to Meals on Wheels and it probably wouldn't be cut at all. But they're not. They're totally wasting it on things that the federal government has no business spending their money on, your money on. Wow, isn't that wild? So there, now you know the full story. So now when you look at Jake Tapper, who I like, he says, you know, the, the, the block program is, is ending, which funds programs like Meals on Wheels. Come on, that's such a hack move. Let me back it up here. There's two really smart guys who I value, uh, Greg Lukianoff and uh, Jonathan Haidt. They wrote an article about a year and a half ago called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's a long article. I think it's in The Atlantic. It's, uh, it's really, really good. The Coddling of the American Mind. It's mostly about college kids, but not just college kids. And they write this. They say the goal, like just our goal as humans should be, to minimize distorted thinking and see the world more accurately. You start by learning the names of a dozen or so of the most common cognitive distortions, which we're going to talk about in a little bit here. Each time you notice yourself falling prey to one of them, name it, describe the facts of the situation, consider alternative interpretations, and then choose an interpretation of events more in line with those facts. Your emotions follow your new interpretation, and in time, this process becomes automatic. And when people improve their mental hygiene in this way, when they free themselves from the repetitive, irrational thoughts that had previously filled so much of their consciousness, you will become less depressed, anxious, and angry. I want to go over the process next. I love that they call it mental hygiene. I think that's right. I want to go over it next, but 
to apply it to the Meals on Wheels program. People who are inclined to hate Trump, they'll come across a headline like Jake Tapper's or any of the other ones in all these other newspapers and magazines about Trump you know, getting rid of the Meals on Wheels program. If they're inclined to hate Trump, they will read that headline and they'll only ask themselves one question. Can I believe this? Can I believe what Jake Tapper just told me? Yes, I can. Because I want it to be true. So I'm going to hand over all of my critical thinking ability to Jake Tapper because what he said, I, I agree with. And, and he agrees with me. I agree with him. That makes me feel good. And that's it. That's the end of it. That's the end of people's thought process. They run with it. And then they make up these images in their head of poor sick grandma going without food because of Hitler Trump. And we do this to ourselves all the time, as opposed to looking at this and, and getting emotional, right? Looking at Jake Tapper's Twitter, you know, we're ending, Trump is ending the Meals on Wheels program. And instead of getting emotional, which we'll talk about in a second, being like, oh, whoa, okay, what, what did he really? What is the community development block program? How much of that money goes to Meals on Wheels? How much money from Meals on Wheels comes from the program? Could it be funded any other way? Is it appropriate for the Like, instead of asking these questions, people are just like, oh, how unchristian. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? It's not even true. Gosh, we do this all the time. And, and I really think it's the, it should be the job of the Republicans to preempt this. To preempt this thinking. Because people do it all the time, and Democrats use it uh, to mani- manipulate people all the time, too. The Democrat leadership, they're good at it. They know it. Republicans are terrible. All right, I want to take a break. I want to come back. We'll go over a couple of these uh, cognitive distortions. I hate the word cognitive. It's not. It's way too like dramatic of a word. I don't. I don't like that word. So we'll explain all that coming up next. And then if we can do this, if we can grasp these and and make this process that I'll describe automatic. Oh my god! Like the world will be yours. I'm not even kidding. You can see things so clearly, and if you can do that, it's just game on for you. Now, we'll explain it next. Mike Slater showed the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. As we got two books here. We got uh, Dr. David Burns. He has a book called Feeling Good. And then there's another book by three different authors called Treatment Plans and Interventions for, Interventions for Depression and Anxiety Disorder. Uh, so this is all from this article, The Coddling of the American Mind, which I highly recommend. Uh, so this is what these guys say. They say Burns, Dr. Burns defines emotional reasoning as assuming that your negative emotions necessarily reflect the way things are. I feel, therefore, it must be true. These other authors define it as letting your feelings guide your interpretation of reality. But of course, subjective feelings are not always trustworthy guides. Therapy often involves talking yourself down from the idea that each of your emotional responses represents something true or important. Okay, so again, if you just tuned in, we talked about this Meals on Wheels program and how uh, everyone's like, oh, it's being cut. It's being cut. Everyone gets all emotional about it. And it's a, it's a totally distorted vision of what's happening. Everyone creates a movie in their mind of grandma going hungry and pushed off a cliff and all this other stuff. And it's just none of it's true. It's just not true. But it's all emotionally driven. So what we have to do is be able to recognize this in ourselves and other people, but in ourselves too, and be able to see things clearly as they really are. So a couple 
uh, common cognitive distortions. And like I said, I hate the word cognitive. I don't know why I don't like the word. It just seems too fancy. It's just the, um, it's the process your brain goes through when you learn things and know things and memory and perception and judgment and reason. Like it's all brain related things like that. So that's cognitive. So a couple cognitive distortions. And I want to see if you experience any of these. Well, we all do, by the way, everyone does. Uh, it's just a matter of degree of, of, or it's a matter of what and to the degree and to what degree. So this is the one that I do the most of. I got like five or six I want to share here in our couple of minutes. Um, so mind reading. This is the one I do the most. This is when you assume that you know what people think without having any evidence of their thoughts, right? So a common one is a, you know, he thinks I'm a loser or something, but you don't really, you don't really know that what he thinks. You just made that up. So this is the one I do the most. So I assume the worst of what people are thinking of me. So I, and I, and I try and I, I mind read them and then I go right to the worst possible thought that they might have. And I do it like that. So if someone, uh, I'll see someone and they'll say, oh, Slater, I heard your show yesterday. And my first thought is, oh, they hated it. They hate me. It was awful. And I go through like, oh man, like when did they listen? Like it must've been a horrible segment. Oh, like I just immediately go to the worst. But it's equally as likely that they enjoyed what they heard, right? I mean, they go, oh, and it was a great segment, but they, I don't assume that. Assume the worst. It's mind reading. Fortune telling. You predict the future negatively. Things will get worse. I will fail that exam. I won't get that job. Stuff like that. Catastrophizing. You believe that what has happened or will happen will be so awful and unbearable. You won't be able to stand it. So this is, uh, this is the media. Every little thing is the worst ever. And you, the viewer, you won't be able to stand it. Remember last week we, we did a segment about uh, keeping your center, right? Keeping your head on straight. And how all the great action stars in every movie keep calm, cool, and collected all the time. Right? So that's, that's why we like them so much. So obviously we value that characteristic because it's reflected in, in art. Right, being calm. Right, crazy things are going on. We told the story of Jack Reacher. He's about to get in a big fight, and he's like, "All right, guys, are we gonna do this or what?" Right, you know, he likes like super calm and like annoyed that he's fighting, but like, okay, cool. He doesn't get panicked. You never see an action star panic. But the media tries to get us to act like our our hair's on fire all the time. Right, they try to get us to act the opposite of James Bond or John Wayne. John Wayne would never panic like an idiot, but the media goads us into that multiple times a day, and that's the catastrophizing. Everything's a catastrophe. Uh, let's see what else labeling you assign global negative traits to yourself and to others. I'm des- undesirable or, or he's a rotten person. We just label people with these broad uh, general or ourselves with these broad general negative characteristics. Um, negative filtering. You focused almost exclusively on the negatives and seldom notice the positives. Right. I do this one too. I'll get uh, 10 emails on a show, right? I'll get 10 and then nine of them are super positive and one is negative and all I do is zero in on the negative one, right? Negative filtering. Overgeneralizing, you perceive a global pattern of negatives on the basis of a single incident, right? This generally happens to me. I, 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 I seem to fail at a lot of things, things like that, right? That happens a lot with people and uh, airplanes, right? Their airplane will be late 
and they'll be like, every airplane I, t- I ever take, I'm always late. All my airplanes are late. And it's like, it's not true. It's like one out of 10 that you go on is late. But you do, you, the one is late. And you're like, oh, every time. And then uh, blaming, of course, right? You focus on the other person as your source of negative feelings and refuse to take responsibility for changing yourself. She's to blame for the way I feel. My parents caused all my problems, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll stop here. One more. Uh, what if, right? This is when you ask, you keep asking a series of questions about what if something happens and you're never satisfied with any of the answers, right? So you're like, well, I can't do this because what if I get anxious? And then someone says, well, then this will happen. You say, well, then, then what if? Like, what if, what if, what if I can't catch my breath? What if this happens? What if that? What if, what if, what if? And you're never satisfied with any of the answers. You just keep what if, what if, what if, what if, and you keep spiraling down in this, uh, in this dark place. So there's a bunch more. I'll stop here, but there's a bunch more on this article, the, the coddling of the American mind. Um, and you can read them all, but just imagine how powerful you would be if you could know all of these distortions of how you think and how you interpret things. And if you could identify it in the moment and, and wade yourself through the lies and see only the truth and reality and act accordingly and not based on emotion, you would be unstoppable. You'd be absolutely unstoppable. Honestly, if you could just, you would rise above the whole thing. Like everyone is so, just think about work. Like everyone's so emotional. Everything's got to go now. And everyone's just like going crazy with different things that happen and panicking and not seeing things the way they really are. If you are the person who can recognize your emotions and the distortions they're creating and, and really just like, rise above it and control it and you can view the whole thing at 30,000 feet like a general up on a hill watching the soldiers right like you're like you're a totally different person and then you have so much more power almost sounds like a negative you have just so much more control that's where you need to be and then you also won't get caught up in any of the lies of the media either I want to tell a story of uh King Cyrus coming up next from 2,000 years ago and uh, relate that to Russia. We'll do that next on the Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. talk about uh the democrats and their russia obsession which i now wonder if this will even continue because the, the only reason it's a thing is it's a it's a weapon to use against trump but after this healthcare debacle the democrats may not need this russia weapon anymore i don't know we'll see but either way uh i want to tell a story to, to lead up to it so we'll go back to 281 bc you got Rome, right in the middle of Italy, right? And there's another city called Tarentum. It's a city on Italy's east coast. It's right across the way from Greece. So this is southeast of Rome. It was actually a Greek colony, right? So you got the city in Italy that the Greeks controlled. And the people there spoke Greek, and they considered themselves uh, cultural Spartans. And it was the wealthiest city in Italy at the time. So Rome, is 281 BC, Rome was still kind of up and coming, but they didn't want to take on Tarentum. 
because they knew that if they attacked, Tarrington was super wealthy and they could pay all these other armies to defend itself and it'd just be bad news. But Tarentum then sunk some sunk some Roman ships and killed the admiral and it became this big thing and now it's just game on. So Rome says, we're going to attack you. Now, Tarentum had a, a problemo. They had no army. Life was so good in this colony. Everyone was so rich. They Everyone just got soft and they got used to the good life and they had no army. So they're like, oh, so they call the Spartans. Asked to get some help. And they were busy somewhere else. So the Spartans said no. So the people in Tarentum called on King Phyrus. This guy uh, was baller. So this is just a few years after Alexander the Great died. And King Phyrus loved Alexander. Admired him. Said he was a distant cousin. Don't know if he really was. uh, But just wanted to be connected. with. And also this family said that they were descendants of Achilles, one of the greatest warriors ever. So Phyrus was just so ready to live a life of glory and rule and empire, just like Alexander the Great, right? His nickname was the Eagle. So King Phyrus gets this call, and he's like, I'm all in. I'm, I'm definitely, this is my chance. So Alexander the Great came from the other way, right? He came from Spain over. Uh, but now, so Tarentum's like, well, I'm going to take over the same territory, but I'm going to come at it from, from the west, or from the east, go west, right? So he's like, this is perfect. This is my chance. So he set sail from Greece to Italy, just across the way. 20,000 soldiers, 3,000 horsemen, 2,000 bowmen, and 20, well, I'll tell you that in a second, 20 of his secret weapons. So he gets to Tarentum, and he's like, all right, where's your army? They lied to him, right? He, he, they told him that they had an army. He just, they just needed some backup. So he goes there thinking there's something there and there's nothing. So he's like, oh, geez. So the Romans found out that he arrived and that there was no other army there. So the Romans are like, this is our chance. We're going in now. They didn't give him any more time to get ready. So they fight and the Romans start winning. And then King Phyrus unleashes his... Secret weapon. All right, you got the 20,000 soldiers, the 3,000 horsemen, the 2,000 bowmen, and the 20 elephants. Now, I don't quite understand what, like, how this would work or how you can like, a, train an elephant to like attack or try. I don't, I don't get the whole thing, but the Romans were freaked out. They've, they've never seen elephants in battle before. So they're like, what? And then you got these soldiers on top, raining arrows down on them from the top of the elephants. So the Romans are like, we're out of here. So Phyrus won. Now the problem is he lost a ton of men in the battle and he lost a ton of his top guys. And the Romans impressed him because I mean, the Romans almost won. If it wasn't for the elephants, the Romans won. So, Phyrus decided to negotiate a peace settlement. The Romans rejected him. We'll never share Italy, they said. So then they met the next year, a couple months later, in another battle. And the Romans were winning. But again, King Phyrus, he unleashed the elephants. And the elephants won. They beat the Romans back. Now, you might have the attitude, well, like, Jesus, King Phyrus guy, he's awesome. Keeps winning. He can't be stopped. He's two for two. He's going to be just like uh, Alexander the Great. He's going to take over the entire region at this rate. I mean, the, the Romans keep attacking. They, they have no chance. 
No. Again, he lost so many men. He lost so many of his generals. He couldn't go on. He said, if we defeat the Romans in one more battle, we shall be totally ruined. Right? He said, if we defeat the Romans one more time, we're going to be ruined. Which, I mean, you would think if, you know, if we lose to the Romans, no, he said, if we defeat them again, we're going to, we'll be ruined. But he already was ruined. He just, he couldn't go on and that was it. That was the end of King Cyrus's campaign in Italy. So it's from this story, it's from King Cyrus, where we get the term a Pyrrhic or a Pyrrhic victory. I'm sure you've heard that before, a Pyrrhic victory. This is when uh, you win, right? Your goal is achieved, but it's at such great a cost, you, you might as well have lost, right? So King King Fierce, he won two, he won twice, two battles, but, I mean, you might as well have lost. So what does this have to do with the Democrats and the Russians? This is all looking like King Fierce. The Democrats are desperate for a win. And I think they're so desperate that they're blind to all their other options. They are dead set on making Russia a thing. They could attack President Trump on 10 other things that have way more credibility than Russia. Or they could just wait and get a better opportunity. But they're blinded by their hatred and they feel the need to take them down now. Like King Ferris and the Romans. Right? We need to take them down now. No time to wait. And even though King Ferris won, he got nothing out of it. And I think this Trump-Russia saga is a no-win for the Democrats. They're too desperate. And they may get a win in the sense that the people who hate Trump can cling on to this as proof that he's a Russian puppet or whatever they're even saying. But at their own loss, right? They'll cling to it so hard that they'll never keep their eyes open for something real. You got to be careful getting too attached to one strategy. And the Democrats are going all in with the Russians and there's nothing there. There's nothing there. A perfect example of the overreach was the whole Jeff Sessions. Uh, it was like two, three weeks ago, a whole Jeff Sessions meeting with the Russian ambassador. Right? I remember everyone flipped out. I'll never forget when I came back home. Long story, but MSNBC was on our TV. Don't even ask why. And it was like 9.30 at night, Pacific time. And I looked at it and it was like, oh my gosh, like something huge is happening. Like terrorist attack in America or something like huge. Like, like breaking news everywhere. Like giant headlines all over the screen. I've never seen so many words on the screen at one time. And then the, the ticker at the bottom was like, the text was flying by. I've never seen it move so fast. You know, the scrolling text at the bottom. I was like, what is happening? And it was Maddow and Brian Williams, right? They brought in the big guns. We're all there. I was like, goodness gracious. And it was the whole Jeff Sessions and the Russian ambassador. I was like, wow, this must really be something. But it was late. So I went to bed. I was like, I'll read about it in the morning. I wake up in the morning and it was a giant nothing sandwich. It was zero. He met with 25 different ambassadors. And so did Nancy Pelosi. And Claire McCaskill does this whole thing. Like, I've never met with a Russian ambassador. And then on Twitter in the last couple of years, three different times, she's like, oh, this afternoon, I'm going to go meet with the Russian ambassador. <laughs> it's like, what are you, what are you like? Why would you say, oh, I've never met with a Russian ambassador? And then you know on Twitter three times you've said, I'm going to go meet with the Russian ambassador. Right? So that's just desperation. That, that's, that's desperation and hysteria. And it makes you vulnerable and then ultimately look ridiculous. And I think that's this whole Russia thing. At best, at best, the Democrats are only going to get a fearic, 
or Pyrrhic victory out of this. All right, maybe they'll win, but it'll be at their own loss. Right? They're never gonna get they're never gonna get any real win out of it. Right? You'll never find proof because it doesn't exist. What that what that Trump and Putin colluded or something? Come on. They'll never find proof that Russia changed the vote tally in Michigan to give Trump the win. I mean, that doesn't that's not real. That's that never happened. So they're going to have all these minor battle victories along the way, right? Like maybe they'll win a news cycle here or there, but they're never going to win the war this way. It's fine by me. I'm just saying for their own, uh, their own advice or just give them a little advice. But um, like I said, when I started, I don't know if the, it's going to be interesting when the fact that the Republicans and Trump and Ryan so epically botched the whole healthcare thing. I think now the Democrats, as they were clinging to Russia to be the thing to take Trump down. I think they're like, like, I just imagine them like desperately clinging to this. Like, I'll never let go of Russia. It's Russia, 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 Russia. And then for like one split second, they open up their eyes and they're like, oh, oh, you guys totally blew it on the healthcare. And they can like let go of Russia and now just talk about this all the time because it's all just a way to attack Trump. And Trump and the Republicans left this, this healthcare thing and made a huge space for the Democrats to come in and mock, and rightfully so in many ways. So it'd be interesting to see if Russia is still even a thing from this point forward. But um, if they keep clinging to it, I don't think any good for them will ever cover it. Which is fine. Again, fine by me, but... 1-800-933-93. and Slater Radio on Twitter. All right, I want to come back. Um, we'll do this as an intro to our healthcare discussion, which we will have coming up in the uh, the top of the next hour. But have you ever heard, I'm sure you saw this on your Facebook feed, Americans spend more on healthcare than any other country and have a we have a lower life expectancy. So we spend more and have a, a lower life expectancy. Have you heard that before? Sure you have. Um, that's not even close to the full story. We'll tell the, the, the full story behind all that coming up next. one 900 Mike Slater, so the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater Slater, he's going to talk about the obamacare replacement situation coming up next but you may have seen this on your facebook feed or somewhere america spends more on health care and has a lower life expectancy right, now the assumption here is that if we move to a single payer you know, free health care then we'd be spending less and we'd live longer right that's that's why people share that uh, be careful with all this. So we got a couple minutes. Let's focus on the first half of the sentence. So America spends more on healthcare than other rich nations. That's the that's the first part of that. That's not necessarily because healthcare costs more. Most of that is because we use more healthcare. Now healthcare is very expensive, and too expensive for a lot of different reasons, and we could talk about that, but. That's not the whole story. So let's get it out of the healthcare world because when people think healthcare, people think they, people get emotional. 
and think like it's different from any other commodity when it's not. So let's just say I told you that we in America, we spend more on lettuce than any other country in the world. What do you think? All right, if I tell you we spend more on lettuce than anywhere else in the world, or we spend more on exercise equipment than anywhere else in the world, or we spend more on furniture than anywhere else in the world, what do you think? You think, gosh, we use a ton of lettuce. Who knew we ate so much lettuce? You think, wow, yeah, we do buy a lot of exercise equipment. Or, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people here, so we're going to buy a lot of furniture, I bet. Right? Let's just do lettuce, right? No one thinks, wow, why is lettuce so much more expensive in America? No, you think, gosh, we must buy a lot of lettuce. And that's true with healthcare, too. We buy a lot of healthcare. It is very expensive, don't get me wrong, but we also buy a lot of it. The fact that it's expensive is not the whole story. Second half of the sentence is life expectancy, right? Um, we have a lower life expectancy. We talked about this when uh, Castro died, and a bunch of people said that Cuba has a, a, a lower infant mortality rate than America. It's all about how you define the data, right? In Cuba, if a baby is born but dies within a few days, they don't count it as being born. In America, if a baby's born premature and doesn't survive, we say that the baby uh, was alive and then died, right? So we count that towards infant mortality. Cuba doesn't. So it's all about how you do the data, right? How you define the data. And it's the same thing with life expectancy, right? Um, there's more car accidents in America. There's more homicides. There's more drug overdoses. People make very bad diet decisions, right? Right. So we eat more gross, disgusting, bad for you food than people in other countries. Healthcare bills won't fix that, right? There's nothing the federal government can do. You know, big picture about car accidents and drug overdose. You know what I mean? You can't just pass a bill to fix that. But this accounts to our life expectancy, and it's one reason why our life expectancy is not as high as everywhere else. If you account for these things, then our life expectancy is just the same as uh, as everywhere else in the in the in the first world. So, listen, silly memes on the internet don't uh, don't share the whole story. I wrote on uh, Facebook the other day, or someone wrote back, Slater, uh, you know, life expectancy has gone up in the last hundred years because of government mandates and regulations. Uh, etc. It's like, well, how about things also like the polio vaccine? <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's a lot more than just these simple platitudes. Mike Slater Show, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. So let's do it. Let's chat about the uh, healthcare debacle from the last uh, couple of days and weeks. 
I'm going to bounce around a lot here because I still get fired up about this. I took a phone call on my local show the other day from someone who said we should pass the bill, right? That the Obamacare replacement bill, just pass it, take whatever you can get. And I, like, I don't want to be rude, but that's that thinking is the problem. And, and his name was Chris, Chris's argument that there are good parts of Obamacare, right? That's what he said. He said, there's good parts of Obamacare. So why not just keep the good stuff? And fix the bad stuff. And he said that, you know, that's what this healthcare bill does. It keeps the good parts, fixes the bad stuff. It's like, wow, that is so off. That is so far off from reality. So let's, but let's break this down. So let's focus on the good stuff. Why is the good stuff in Obamacare, right? The quote unquote good stuff. Why is the good stuff good? Because it's free. So if you are a recipient of, of a government benefit, of course you think it's good, right? It's good for the people who get the free stuff. It's good. But what about the people who have to pay for other people's free stuff? You know, their premiums go up and all the rest. Like, so, so that's what this person's saying. He's like, well, the people who get the free stuff, that's the good part of Obamacare. But then you have the bad, you know, let's fix the bad stuff. Okay, well, what's the bad stuff? Well, the bad stuff is everyone that's paying currently for the good stuff, the free stuff. So if you fix the bad stuff, that means you just give more free stuff. Okay, so fix that. Okay, well, now the people who aren't getting free stuff have to pay even more. So now there's good parts, but now there's even more bad parts. So how do we fix the bad parts? Which is more free stuff. Do you see where this is going? Now, here's the biggest point of all. Let's look at this first group of, of people who have benefited from Obamacare, right? The good parts of Obamacare. Some lower income people. So the way it all works, in, in California, we have something called Medi-Cal. That's health insurance for low income people. 70% of doctors in California, 70% have opted out of the Obamacare exchanges. So 70% of people, 70% of doctors will not see patients on Medi-Cal, which is Obamacare. 70%. And this is why, and I've said this on Fox News a hundred times, there is a huge difference between health insurance, which is what Obamacare is, and health care. A huge difference. So giving someone health insurance for free doesn't mean anything when so many doctors refuse to see those patients. So if I give you health insurance for free, but you can't find a doctor, what good is that? What good is the insurance? No good at all. Now, why won't the doctors see uh, people on Medi-Cal? Because they're reimbursed so little. I talked to a doctor. He said he has to see a Medi-Cal patient once every seven minutes for eight hours a day in order to keep the lights on. So a doctor or a patient, seven minutes, boom, 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 like that. You just can't do it because the government reimburses the doctors so little. So that's why doctors are like, well, we just can't. So 70% of California doctors don't see Medi-Cal patients. So Chris says, well, Slater, what about the good parts? What about the 12 million people who, who now have health insurance? Sure, they have the insurance, but that doesn't mean they have the health care. But even if they did, 
The reason it's good for them is because it's so bad for everyone else. So this is why we need to not just work with what we have, right? That's what the thing is like, well, let's just take the good stuff and keep it. In the, no, no, no. It's all bad. It's, we're so far off. I like, it's so frustrating. This conversation is like, well, should we repeal Obamacare or not? Like, yes, of course, like, of course we should repeal the last hundred years of healthcare mandates and regulations and government control. Forget about Obamacare. Like, of course we should repeal Obamacare. Obviously we should repeal Obamacare. We got to go way, way further back than that. Give me an example. And excuse me, because I know we, if you listen to the show a lot, you know, we've heard, you've heard half of this before, but I, you, I tend not, I haven't gone lately further back, but one thing in our health insurance market today that makes no sense is that insurance is connected to your job. There's no reason for that. That's it's not, it doesn't make economic sense. It doesn't make practical sense. There's no good reason that insurance is connected to your job. Now this is usually I tell this story when people talk about preexisting conditions, right? People will say the Obamacare part. That's good is the part that says you have to cover insurance companies have to cover people with preexisting conditions. Now, who pays for that, right? Everyone else who already has insurance, right? Everyone else's premiums to go for pay for people who are already sick. I say, instead of hacking at the branches, let's strike the root. Henry David Thoreau said there are thousands hacking at the branches for everyone who strikes the root. So I say, let's strike the root. Let's get rid of the concept of pre-existing conditions. What do you mean? How do you do that? Why do pre-existing conditions exist? And every single person who's going to call in right now, Every single person I've had this conversation. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when I say I've had this conversation a hundred times with people who call in and they're like Slater, but let me tell you my situation. And it's the same thing. Here's how it goes. You have a job, you have insurance, you have a heart attack. You're covered. You have insurance. 10 years later, you move to a different state or you change jobs because you change jobs or move to a different state. You lose your insurance. Then you have to go find new insurance, and now suddenly you have a pre-existing condition. You haven't had a pre-existing condition in the last 10 years after your heart attack. It's only because you lost your insurance because you switched jobs or moved to a different state. That's stupid. That's a dumb system. That makes no sense. So if we connected insurance to the person instead of the job, then you would never lose your insurance. So then you would never have a pre-existing condition. You would always have your insurance. Now, someone's going to call and be like, well, what if you want to change your insurance? Yeah, yeah, yeah but you could come up with contracts and figure things out. You wouldn't be forced to lose your, to leave your insurance and try to find new insurance because you could get it across state lines. You could listen, when you leave your job, you take everything with you. You take your hat, your car, your life insurance, your 401k, everything's connected to you except for your health insurance. Now, usually I stop there. Let's go further back. Why is health insurance connected to your job? When did that start? Started in the 1930s. FDR imposed a wage freeze during the Great Depression. So let's say, uh, let's say I want to hire you. Okay, I got a company and I want to hire you. I can't entice you to work for me by paying you more money because FDR, the president, says I can't. Okay, so I can't say, hey, come work for me. Uh, you're currently making uh, 50 grand. I'll pay you 60. I can't do that. There's a wage freeze. The government won't let me. 
That is when companies started offering benefits as like a loophole to get around that. So they'd say, well, listen, I want you to work for me. I can't pay you any more money because the federal government says I can't, but I'll give you health insurance. And that would entice people to, to go to different companies after the great depression, they got rid of the, uh, the wage freeze, but people were a little bit used to getting their insurance through their employer. And then Congress passed a law that says, if you get your insurance through your employer, it's tax-free. So that's why today it's something like 70% of people get their insurance through their company. But the only reason that exists today is because it was some workaround of a New Deal era control from 80 years ago. There's no, there's no reason to have insurance connected to your job. It's, it's, it's like, like an old holdover. So that's what I'm talking about. We don't just need to repeal Obamacare. We need to go back totally to the beginning, like a hundred years. We had a totally, completely clean slate, complete clean slate when it comes to healthcare and health insurance in America. Start from zero. There is no one. If we started from zero, Right, total clean slate. There is no one who would design the health insurance industry to look like it looks today. Right, not a single person, starting from scratch, would build it to look like it does right now. And now we have this incredible, once in a, truly a once in a lifetime opportunity with Republicans in the House, the Senate, and the presidency, to to be innovative and start from scratch and build something that makes sense. And they totally botched it. Like not even close. And then you get people calling my show. Republicans be like, well, you know, that we got to keep the good parts of Obamacare. It's like, whoa, what, what, what are you talking about? Wow, you're the problem. You're the problem. Of course, Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to change parts of Obamacare. But you're a Republican. You're a conservative and you want to keep these parts? Oh, well, then we have no hope. <laughs> Let me tell you how bad the Republicans are on this. There's a congressman from New York. He was on MSNBC the other day. He said this, I quote, in my district right now, there's a lot of misunderstanding as to what it is we're doing. But once we get it done, then we can have the chance to really explain it. Once we get it done, then we can have the chance to really explain it. Eight years. Eight years of ripping on Nancy Pelosi for saying we have to pass the bill so you can find out what's in it. Eight years later, the American people give the conservatives the House, the Senate, the presidency. And the best they could pull together was this terrible bill. And then they have a congressman go out and say, once we get it done, then we'll have the chance to really explain it. Total garbage. What a disaster. Don't blame your constituents, congressman, for not understanding the bill. Blame yourself for not writing an easy-to-understand bill. And blame yourself for not explaining it well in the first place. And blame yourself for writing a terrible bill that 
can't be explained. It's it's so bad that the whole thing, not only the bill itself, but the way they pitched it, the way they unveiled it, this whole three phase nonsense. They t- were totally behind the eight ball. They let the Democrats compare. They, they did horrible. Just everything about it was awful. It, it was so bad that I almost feel like there's another play here. Like that, that's a bad. It's like it's like there's no way you totally let this get out of your hands like this. I got to take a break. I got some more things to say about it. We'll do it next. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. But does that make sense with the um, pre-existing conditions and, and why insurance is connected to your job today? I mean, it makes no sense. But like, you understand how this happened. So the fact that we have Republicans in office right now and they couldn't co- go back to the beginning, clean slate, start from zero, and say, "Wow, you know what? Maybe insurance shouldn't be connected to your job." All right, well, let's make it tax-free, whether you buy it through your job or not, right? And 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 then that we don't have that. Uh, distortion in the market anymore, right? And and okay, no more state lines. So now you can buy insurance across state lines. So if you change jobs or uh, move to a different state, you don't have to lose your insurance. And like they couldn't do that. That's pathetic. One eight one eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, I don't even know why the Republicans in leadership felt the need to pass this bill. No one supported it. Now, now obviously, you're not going to get everyone to support it. That's impossible. But I'm not even talking about that. Like, I don't know anyone who would support this. So the latest poll the other day was 17% of people support this replacement. 17%. So who are they fighting for? Right. Like congressmen like to fight for things, right? And I'm fighting for you. I'm fighting for the little guy. Who are you fighting for here? Who wants this? Who is this good for? Let, let me word it like this. Who thinks that if this replacement bill were passed, that the health insurance crisis would be solved? Right. Does anyone really think that this is the solution? I, you know what I want? I want some finality to this. I want a system that makes sense, is rational, and gives people more freedom, not just different government control. Obamacare was bad, and you replace it with something just as bad, just like different, just a little different. Like what? What? Who, that's not a solution, and there's no finality to it. It was just kicking the can down the road. We're so, so sick of this. How many? The, the whole thing. The whole thing. Oh, listen, we can't. Last seven years, oh, we can't. But you can't repeal it. We just don't have the majority. So we gave it to you. And the first thing they come out with is, this is nothing. It's like, what? what a waste. I think the people who voted for Trump are look. we're looking for drastic change, right? Like I said, a full repeal of not only Obamacare, but just everything. Like the whole thing is just start over. I think everyone voted for Republican congressmen who promised the opposite of what the Democrats are doing, not just a slightly different version. These are two complete fails from the Republicans. 
and then and then for Trump to say, uh, you know, vote for this, this bill, or Obamacare stays, and we're not moving on. Like that's horrible. So do you trust him or any other Republicans to do anything bold from this point forward? Why would they? Why would they do a bold? Like listen, they're total chumps on health care, but you think they're really going to cut taxes drastically? Oh yeah, we're going to make big, big changes to the tax code. Why? Why? Why would you? What makes you think they're going to do big things with the tax code? They were pathetic on health care. Oh, but this wall is going to be big and beautiful. Really? I, I, and if if this did pass, I don't even like. Were they going to claim victory? Like. <laughs> Wow, great day for the American people. Meanwhile, 83% of Americans are like, this thing's terrible. Listen, Rahm Emanuel, when he was Obama's chief of staff or whatever he was, he said, you've got to hit singles in healthcare. You can't hit a home run. So that's proof that Democrats, as we've said for a long time, are very patient. And they are with every issue. They always do the piecemeal approach. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit more. And then before you know it, we have single-payer health care, right? So we're going to cover poor kids. Then we're going to cover poor adults. Then we're going to cover people twice the poverty level. Then we're going to cover older Americans and then less older Americans. And then we're going to cover poor kids all the way to 25 with S-chip. Oh, and then we're going to cover all kids to 25, right? And it just goes on and on. It's all piecemeal. It's all singles. Now, Obamacare was, was a, maybe a double, right? It was the biggest step in this piecemeal approach, but it still wasn't what they want. The, Obamacare was designed to fail, right? Obamacare was designed to overwhelm the system and crumble so that the ultimate goal could be achieved, and that's a single-payer free health care for everyone. That's the whole shtick. The whole thing is um, it's so complicated, so expensive, so convoluted that the, polit- the Democrats can come in after it collapses and say, oh my gosh, wow, that thing. You know, we tried to do what the Republicans wanted with markets and all that. But uh, you know what? From now on, free health care for everyone. It's just free for everyone. Don't worry about it. Don't have insurance. You don't have insurance. Everyone, it's all free. Right? That's the goal here. So Democrats hit singles. Republicans have had, they had the greatest chance of our lifetime to hit a home run and completely change everything. This could never happen in our lifetimes again could totally, completely change the health care and health insurance system in our country with a, with a grand slam. And they whiffed. And if the Democrats get the ball again to mix sports analogies, then you know they're going to take it to the end zone this time. This was the last chance to make drastic difference. And not only did the Republicans not hit a single, they hit a dribbling bunt down the line on strike two. Just so bad. Will they have another chance? Do you trust him with another chance? Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Later.
Slider Crusaders. I want to go to Bob, who's in uh, New York. What's going on, Bob? Hey, Mike. Uh, thank you for your critical thinking, and I wish more people would follow your instruction and your education. Thanks, the thing Bob, that I, I see is a big piece of this. You mentioned before about how the Republicans or the conservatives don't attack the Democrats on issues like this Deals on Wheels, which was uh, minimally affected by the money that's allocated. It's the, draining the swamp on the Republican side is just as important because they're doing the same thing, and that's my belief why they don't retaliate. They've misspent money and misappropriated money, and they know the Democrats know that too. 100%. Now, do you think so? So let's let's bring this to the um, health care bill. Did you support this health care bill? Would you have voted for it? No, I would have never done that uh, with what they presented. And it was a embarrassment on our side to even think mm. that they could go forward with that. Hundred percent with you. So, who do you blame for that? Mostly, the, the whole thing, the whole presentation of it, the the whole experience of this last week. <laughs> Where do you put the blame? Well, probably on us because we voted all these people in office mm. with the promise that they would do what they said they would do. So we're going to have to fix it. They're not going to fix it. They're still getting away with murder, and we don't have the leverage. Or apparently, we don't have the leverage. To kick them the hell out. If, if, if Trump really wanted to do his job, he had to fire everybody in the Senate and the Congress to start over. Yeah, unfortunately, he can't do that, but we must. Bob, I appreciate the comment. Thanks for listening and for your uh, kind words. Thank you. Hey, um, thank you. I just want to uh, be clear if you're just tuning in. We talked about Meals on Wheels earlier and how the budget doesn't really, if it doesn't affect Meals on Wheels, even though everyone's saying that Trump killed Meals on Wheels. Um, I did not say that we need that Republicans need to attack Democrats. I said Republicans need to preempt Democrats. You need, they need Republicans need to preempt the obvious attacks that are coming uh, when you cut a part of the government, right? So it's the Community Development Block Program. It's three billion dollars. A tiny, littlest bit of that might go to a Meals on Wheels program because the the federal government gives some of this money to the local governments and the local governments can spend on whatever they want. And a few local governments might spend some of the money on Meals on Wheels. But you have to know that the Republic, that the Democrats are going to take that and be like, oh, Meals on Wheels is gone. Trump just killed all people, threw them off a bridge. They're starving. Did it, right? Like you got to know they're going to do that. So preempt it. It's so simple. We did this exact same thing during the debates. Right? Remember we were giving advice uh, during the debate and, and one of the debate techniques is to preempt your enemy's attack. It's no different than boxing, right? Or chess, right? You think a couple moves ahead. That's it. You know, if you're in boxing, you don't just, if you're boxing, somebody, you don't just punch, you punch knowing that the, if, if I punch here, then their next punch is probably going to come here. So I got to prepare to defend this, right? You got to be a couple moves ahead. And it's the same thing with debating, Right, you got to know that when you say something, you have to know not only what you're saying, but what they're probably going to say back. And then if you can preempt that, then they have nothing to come back with. So the Republicans needed to come out and say, "Hey, here's the budget. Here's three billion dollars we're cutting from the Community Development Block Program." The Democrats are going to say that this money goes to Meals on Wheels, but what it really goes to is building pergolas at the botanical gardens in atlanta and we're 20 billion dollars in better 20 trillion dollars in debt or whatever 20 billion i guess uh who knows what it is 
So uh, we don't have money to be spending on botanical gardens and right. Like come out in front of it. And I, I put some blame to bring it back to the healthcare thing. I bring, I put some blame on, oh, I put a lot of blame on Paul Ryan. I mean, it's pathetic. I don't know what the heck Tom Price at health and human services are doing. Like I don't, I don't get any of those guys. I put a lot of blame on Trump too. That's why like, listen, if you've been listening to this show, I don't want any, what I'm about to say here, I don't want any emails or tweets from anyone being like, Oh, how dare you be critical of Trump? Because we have for years, two years now, given Trump the benefit of the doubt, maybe more than anyone else in the plays. Right, we give him the benefit. I think Trump is a master persuader. I think he's a genius marketer and brander, unlike maybe anyone else in the entire country. He used none of that with this healthcare bill, which almost makes me think like there's another play here, right? That he gave it to Paul Ryan, knowing that Paul Ryan would botch it up, and it's like, hey, here you go, sport. Why don't you go uh, take a swing at the healthcare thing, knowing? And then Trump's like, oh yeah, no, I support it. But did he really? Why didn't Trump present it? Why didn't Trump pitch it? Why didn't Trump go to Nashville and give a big speech and present the health care bill? He like came he came in like the back door and and stamp, put a stamp of approval on it in the end, but not in the beginning. Why not? That's what's weird about it. So I don't know if there's a play here or if he just just blew it. I'll give you an example. We said this six months ago. I said the most important thing about this healthcare bill is, do you remember? The name of it. The name. This is a sad testament to the state of our country today, but it could be a terrible bill with a great name and people would like it or vice versa, right? It could be an amazing bill, but with a bad name and people would hate it. Jimmy Kimmel a couple weeks ago did a skit on the street where he asked people if they support the uh, Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, which is, of course, the same thing. And if they hated Obama, they were against Obamacare, but they loved the Affordable Care Act. And if they hated Trump, they hated the Affordable Care Act, but they loved Obama, right? So it's all in the name. And this, I mean... (laughs) Again, this is not a this is not a good testament to the people, but, but this is how emotional things are, and a name is incredibly important. It's branding, and I don't know. Maybe I don't need to. I don't mean to belittle it. Let, let me give an example. Would you buy sneakers from Blue Ribbon Sports? Would you would you buy buy a pair of sneakers? Like, oh yeah, I gotta buy the newest uh, newest shoes from Blue Ribbon Sports. Mm, I don't know, not really. But uh, would you buy shoes from Nike? Well, that was the original name of Nike, Blue Ribbon Sports. I don't think Blue Ribbon Sports would be as successful as Nike, even if Jordan was uh, was the spokesperson just the same. I don't think Blue Ribbon Sports would be as successful. Best Buy was originally called Sound of Music. Mm. I don't know. Auction web changed their name to eBay. Do you think eBay would be as popular if it was called auction web? Mm. Marafuku company changed their name to Nintendo. I think Nintendo, I think if you had a parallel universe and one, everything was the same, except one company was named Marafuku company and one was named Nintendo. I think Nintendo's popular. I don't think Marafuku company is even if they unleash the same products and everything. Jerry's Guide is now called Yahoo. What would be more popular, Yahoo or Jerry's Guide? 
And you can do the same thing with bands, right? Kara's Flowers changed their name to Maroon 5. The Pendletons changed their name to the Beach Boys. Do you think the Pen- I don't think the Pendletons would be as popular as the Beach Boys. You get the idea. There's a lot in a name. What was the name of this uh, Obamacare replacement? The American Health Care Act? I mean, come on. There's no pitch. There's no sizzle. Obviously, there was no steak, but they didn't even have any sizzle. That's what's so weird about it. No steak or sizzle. Stephen Green said that this replacement bill, it's, it was the GOP, it was the Republicans negotiating with itself the terms of its surrender. It was, it's like, guys, you're in the majority now. So it's, instead of starting from scratch and saying, if, if we completely redefined health care and health insurance in, in, in America, what would it look like? Instead, they just stared at Obamacare and said, well, how can we improve this a little bit? How can we tweak this a little bit? So guys, that's not what we put you there to do. So that's the steak part. But even the sizzle, there's no, you couldn't even give it a good name. So, so I bring that up in, in light of Bob's comment because that's an example of getting in front of it, right? Getting in front of, of, of the Democrats and getting in front of the media and getting in front of, of the American people and saying, hey, this is, this is it. This is what we've done. Isn't it awesome? Look how exciting it is. Here's, you know, bang, bang, bang. Here's three different aspects of it that we think are amazing and it's going to completely revolutionize everything in all these ways and it's so awesome. And here's what we're calling it. Bah, it's a big catchy name. I don't know what to call it. But big, fun, catchy name that's easy to say and easy to understand and people can wrap their head around it. Here, let me tell you the power of this. What was Trump's campaign slogan? Of course. What was Hillary's campaign slogan? I don't even... I think it was a stronger together, I guess, right? Like, What was Trump's? Make America great again. Right, easy, simple. Says a ton. Says everything. Right, it's great. What was uh, what was Obama's campaign slogan? Hope and change. You remember it eight years later. What's the name of this uh, this American healthcare? There's nothing there. It was really just called the Obamacare replacement. But then you know what it was called after that, which doomed it. Obamacare light. See, that's there's there's your proof that it's all in the name. It was as soon as it was called Obamacare light, which is a very accurate name. That was it. That was the end of it. Didn't have a prayer. And then, the, and then the Trump and the Republicans come out with, oh, well, it's uh, three phases. It's that this, you know, it's phase one, which, in, which is okay, but it's a phase, oh, the real thing's phase two, and then phase three brings it on. It's like, come on, guys. What are we doing? Oh, you know, congressional rules say that we must three steps is. Come on. What a pile of garbage. 1 800 1888. 933-93, I wonder, Bob, do you trust these same guys to do anything right from this point forward? I mean that genuinely. Do you, do you really trust? Like, I mean, I was so excited for tax reform. I'm thinking, man, like, what if, what if Trump comes out and he's like, you know what? I said we were going to, this is what uh, Margaret Thatcher did. Margaret Thatcher said we're going to cut taxes by this percentage, and she ended up cutting it by even more. Right, we're gonna cut spending by this much, and she cut it by even more than she campaigned on. She campaigned on big, drastic reform, and she got in office, and all the people around her were like, "Ooh, like we can't, don't go that far." And she went even further. And I thought Trump might do the same thing, right? He says, "I'm gonna cut taxes. Oh, it's gonna be a ton, right?" And we create the like, "What is it gonna be? How low?" And, I, and I'm thinking, like, well, "Man, what if he does a 10% flat tax? Oh, that'd be great." Now I'm like, 
He may have raised taxes at this point. <laughs> I don't even who knows anymore. I don't trust him to do anything bold. I don't trust him to do anything innovative. Man, they lost that trust so quickly. Sad. And they didn't need to at all. So it's such a self-inflicted wound. one 93 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders, thanks for being here. We only got uh, a few minutes left, but let's go to uh, Justin in the great state of Idaho. What's going on, Justin? Not much, Chris. How's your day going? Well, it's going real good, man. So, what's on your mind here? Well, here's what I think happened. Now, when Paul Ryan first came out with this, he was just so happy bragging. Oh, I've been working on this bill for twenty years, and Shortly thereafter, the president signed on, and he did his job. He went out, he tried to make this happen. I think what we did discover now is who the sneaky snakes are. That's why Trump said, fine, we're not going to deal with this right now. Let's move on. Now I know who my problem people are, and now the American people know who the Republicans are that should have a D next to their name. Because mm-hmm. you're going to try to shove the same bill, really, we all just saw this. Now we know Paul Ryan can't be trusted. Can't trust this guy as far as you can throw him. And the fact that these people just think that everybody out here is so ignorant that we can't put one and two together <laughs> is an insult. That's why I walked away from the Democratic Party, because King Obama turned into a tyrant. And I was like, wow, this is madness. So Why, why do you I, think I, Trump I, signed on to this bill at all? See, this is what I'm going to think, that it's, it's political inexperience. we got to give the man that credit. We know he's good at all the other things, but politics, it's not really a strong suit. I think once he talked to the Freedom Caucus, because he's the only guy who even bothered to talk to them, really, yeah. I think that's when he went, wait a minute, this is going to die, and I'm just going to walk away from it then. Hmm. I think he got his eyes opened up and saw that this bill is not – what we wanted. That's yeah. why he walked away from it so fast. He dropped it like a hot potato. He said, yeah. nope, I'm not going there with this. Thank goodness for those Freedom Caucus guys, right? I mean, there's not many of them, but oh, man. Th- that's the holdover from the Tea Party, right? Those are, those are the only guys who saved this whole thing. Because if this passed, I don't know if you agree with this, if this passed, then that would be it with health care reform, and then it would still oh. collapse and crumble, and then the Republicans would own all the problems with health care, right? Exactly. And then when a Democrat steps into power, whoever gets that secretary position, well, they can just start doodling with their pen and we're all screwed. Yeah, that's it. Hey, Justin, man, good to hear from you, brother. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Keep it up, man. Yeah. Thanks for uh, for uh, I got some buddies who live in Idaho and they uh, gosh, they love it there. It's where all the Californians go to get out of here. Um, I don't know why Trump signed on to this thing. I, I really, I really don't get it. It's, it's, um, it's, it was not even close. That's, that's, that's all I can say about it. Hey, I got, I got 30 seconds. Let's, can we celebrate one thing? Why not? No one, no, no one paid attention to this. So Keystone Pipeline. So the Undersecretary of State 
uh, signed off on this. So now it goes to Nebraska. So the state of Nebraska gets to decide if the Keystone Pipeline gets built now, but the federal government has essentially wiped their hands clean of it. We're good to go. So there's currently 72,000 miles of crude oil pipeline. We're going to add another 1,000 miles, and let's get done with that. Bunch of jobs and then all the good stuff that comes from that. So that's good. There was one win that happened last week, but gosh, that was overshadowed by a terrible loss. Self-inflicted, too. Spread the word. See you next week. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.